me. Every time I'm away, even if it's just for one day, it feels like I've been away for eternity. So it's always good uh, to be home. Uh, Sharon sends her regards. Um, she's definitely missing everyone. And she is adjusting to the new environment there. And uh, I certainly do miss her. I need prayers. <laughs> As we have already said, we are continuing our studies <clears throat> in the Word of God. And the subject that we chose is the Feast of Jehovah. For those that were here, I can't remember, that was four weeks ago, we did make an introduction on this subject. I would remind everyone again that we chose this subject because... These are needful issues that we need to know. And one thing about the word of God is that it's amazing. And it's not something that you can grasp by doing religious education. I don't know if they still teach religious education nowadays in schools, but I grew up um, learning religious education. And it's not something that you will really grasp by going to university either. The things of God, the word of God is, <laughs> scripture describes it as two-edged sword. And I don't think it's, 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 it's over-emphasizing its importance and its sharpness. The word of God is, is truly food and truly wisdom and truly life itself. The things that are packed in the word of God. Even this tonight, I'm not, I'm not going to try and cover everything. When I was preparing this, I didn't even know whether I should depend on slides. And I realized that if I depend on slides, I'm going to spend, people will be glued to the slides and not maybe miss the things that I'm trying to say. And, and I was like, which subject should I, should, should, should I structure my message? There is so much that is in these things. And even for some of us who've been saved since 1997, discovering new things every single day. So what we're doing here, we're just whetting your appetites. If indeed you are a student of the Bible, you will have questions. After services like this, you have questions. You would have an inquisitive mind. You will go and find out for yourselves. One of the things that I used to enjoy when I got saved, that I was, in, I was saved with a group of other young people, and we used, I mean, we're noisy, absolutely, absolutely, unruly and noisy. But that was a good noise. The noise was about debates. Debating what? Debating scripture. Because we discovered that as we were spending more time with scripture after we were saved, we were discovering things that we couldn't retain ourselves. We just wanted to share with, with each other. And the amazing thing is that some of the things that we shared as we shared with each other, we discovered they are the same things that my colleagues in my circles have been looking at. And it is those kind of ways in which God was just moving around us as we were growing in our faith as babies in the things of God. And we're discovering these things every single day and we would be so delighted and can't wait to meet each other so that we can discuss these things. And sometimes we agree, sometimes we, don't, we disagree and then we'll form Bible studies. Because the word of God is just amazing. So I'm, going, I'm just going to try and whet your appetite on some of these things that you will look for yourself. 
just a little um, uh, cap from what we discussed last time. Two verses that I want you to constantly keep in your minds as we go through these uh, lessons. This one from Hosea, and I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast. And this is the verse that I want you to always keep in your minds. I have also spoken by the prophets. I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. We talked about this verse in our introduction that God has spoken to his people, we, his people, through various mediums. And all those mediums have been recorded unto us in the word of God. So do you want to know what God is saying? God has written down everything that we need to know in his word. And they are not just words. They are spiritual words. They are powerful words. You have to find for yourself some of these things. God will not give you things easily. If you want gold, you've got to dig deep. It's just, it's just the way it is. There is no shortcut about these things. I, I started a new job, and I am torn between two choices in every task that I do. When I've got a task that needs to, I can either delegate to my colleagues that report to me, or I can do it myself. Now, when I delegate and somebody does it for me, they will do it. But what I lose from that is that I will not know how the job is done. But when I go and do it myself, it's stressful, it takes time, it's annoying. But when the job is done, I know the job inside out. When I am asked questions by my boss, I don't have to refer to somebody else. I can answer them myself. That is the benefit of me doing things. So this is the same thing that God is communicating to us. Let's look at the next verse again. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. And this is the verse that I want us to keep in our mind. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of Scripture, might have hope. These things are written for our learning. So we're going to learn a couple of things today. Now, you would remember last time when we made our introduction, we introduced the seven feasts that we're going to be dealing with. And the first three, we explained that these feasts are looking backwards. Okay, these are historical feasts. We're going to work through them systematically. But after these three feasts, there is a middle feast, which is in the middle of the sevens of one. And there is a kind of a break in this particular feast, which leads to the other three feasts, which are in the later year in the Jewish calendar. And these ones look to the future. We're going to work through these. And the thing that I want us to bear in mind is that as these things were written, the Jews who were reading them, they would not have known these things. 
they would have no, they would have just understood the instruction, the literal wording of them. Okay, go kill this cow, go do this. They would know that. They would know the dates and they would know that kind of that kind of instruction. But they would not have understood the meaning of the things that God was communicating to them through these instructions. But we now, with the completion of the canon, who are living in the New Testament, we have the benefit of knowing things that they did not know, of seeing things now with the illumination of the Holy Spirit that now brings this word alive to us to make these words, which are just plenary instructions to the Jews of the day, to make them alive in a way that will impact us in such a way that we get to know the mind of God, not academically, but in the manner that he intended us to know. Those similitudes that he was talking about, those pictures that he was talking about, we can now know them because now they are made plain before us. So, the first, the first that we're going to look at is the Passover. Now, last time we read from uh, chapter 23, uh, but this one we're going to read from uh, chapter 12. I'm going to read it in, in, in its entirety for completeness sake, but we are not going to dwell, dwell in everything. I'm just going to pick some snippets from this particular passage. So this is in Exodus chapter 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the month, the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on these two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with the bitter herbs they shall eat it. Not, eat not of it, raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, will smite through the land of Egypt, both men and beast, 
and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be, on, shall be to you for a token upon the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over it. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. You shall keep it. It is a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whatsoever eateth, whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut, from, cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation. And in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you, no manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought you your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your congregation by an ordinance forever. In the first month, of the fourteenth day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leaven, even that soul shall be cut from cut off from congregation of Israel, whether be he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations shall you eat unleavened bread. And as always, we trust that the Lord will bless the public reading of his word. Now, I read all the way to the leavened bread because as we discussed uh, in the introduction, this particular feast is very connected with the next one, the feast of unleavened bread. There is no brokerage uh, in the two feasts. So this is why I put them together. But we are not going to, as I was debating, I decided I'm not going to Talk about the, the unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread itself. But if you read in the New Testament, you'll find that the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, they are used even interchangeably because there is no breakage. But we'll look into that in our next session. But for tonight, we're going to look at the Passover. Now, the first thing that we take notice of as we look at this passage is that God instructs Israel. If we remember, Israel is coming out of Egypt. God had been silent for about 430 days. Until then, the people of Israel have been living in whatever way they could to survive. Right? But after they came out of the land of Egypt, they were now God's people. And they are now going to be under the direct authority of God. And they are no longer the same people that they were. Remember, when they were in Egypt, they were slaves. When they were in Egypt, they were in bondage. But now they are out of Egypt. They are going to start a new life. What does God do? The first thing that he does. He tells them that in this month, this month of Abibi, sometimes called Nisan, this is going to be your first month. Now, if you look at the Jewish calendar, you will find that this month is actually month number seven. 
But God says to Israel, this is going to be your first month. What does this communicate to you and I? What happened to the six months of the year that were before? Because indeed, they did have six months before this seventh month. But God tells them, this is the beginning of months. This is the first month as far as God is concerned. There is something that I want us to understand. When in times past, before you knew God, you did whatever you did. Right? We lived lives that we wanted to live. We were in bondage. We may not have known then, but we were in bondage. We were Israel in Egypt. But when God found us, when God took us to himself and made us his own, what did he do? He started with us afresh. Israel had already lived six months into the year. But when God takes them out of bondage, he starts afresh with them. Make no mistake. I don't care what lives we lived in times past. We can tell this to people. No matter how immoral you were, even if you came out of a prison, even if you are a murderer, even if you are a thief, when God starts with you, God starts with you afresh. It is day one with God. I wish we could understand this because sometimes as God's people, we wallow in the things that we have done in times past. But you've got to understand this. When God starts with you, he starts with you on day one. This is very profound. When you think about it in a practical sense, Suppose it was possible, in a practical way, that somebody who has lived up to my age of 43 years old, all of a sudden, they will be considered to be living day one today. Can we see the implications of that? What about the debts that I have in my life? What about my mortgage? What about the people that I have wronged in my life? What about... What about this? What about that? But God says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. If you go into John chapter 3, we have an incident of a man, a very knowledgeable Jew, Nicodemus. When he was confronted with this prospect of being born again, he was astonished. Now, he was astonished, I don't think... It was, his astonishment was only limited to the physicality of the impossible, how it was for a person to go back into his mother's womb and be born again. But the implication of it is that it is more than just the physical impossibility. It is the fact that how can a person who is grown up with all a baggage of testimony of his life in the past... How is it possible that somebody who has got a track record has got a history of his entire existence all of a sudden can be considered as if they never existed before and they start today? What about all this baggage that is behind him? What do we do? 
What happens? It is a radical ex it is a radical experience when somebody is being born again. This is what God is communicating to Israel. He's saying to Israel, I am starting with you now, day one. God started with me November in December. 1997. He started with me in day one. And I am convinced, and I am thoroughly convinced that I don't even have to dwell on what happened in November 1997. I don't even look at that. I am grateful to my God every day that everything that I did was involved in, in all the days past, as far as God is concerned, it is gone. It is day one. Israel, when they read these things, they wouldn't have noticed these things. But these are the things that God is communicating to us now to know so that we can enjoy them in our salvation. We have so many things to thank God for. And this is one of the greatest and the biggest things that we can thank God for. For starting day with us on day one and wiping our entire history and our entire testimony of our lives that we lived in sin. This is amazing. Verse 3. We notice that when we look at verse 3, there is something that then is brought to our attention. That scripture seems to progressively focus ourselves in. In verse 3, we are told that every man would take a lamb. But by the time you get to verse 4, we notice that a household is to take the lamb. And by the time you get to verse 5, now it is your lamb. Do you see this progression? We started with a lamb in verse 3, but when you get to, four, to verse 4, it is now the Lamb. And then when you get to verse 5, it is now your lamb. The lamb of God I, I fail for words here. The lamb of God there were many lambs that were used by God. There were many. The prophets of God, the kings of God, and, 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 and all those servants that were used by God. Some died for God. But there is the lamb of God. We'll see this later on as we progress. Which is different from just a lamb amongst them. And when we recognize him as the lamb, we will start to understand that he is the lamb that is for you. One of the things that really, that God used to convict me was the understanding of the fact that, yes, it is true for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the world. It is true. But what really struck me in 1997 is the fact that for God so loved me 
that he gave his only son. I don't know if you see this. But the fact that God loved me as an individual, me alone, not my family, he will deal with my family in his own way, but he loved me as an individual and sent his son for me. That brought me to my knees. It was then that I understood that it was me, my sin, that put him on the cross. And it dawned on me in a way that I had never seen it before. It is very easy to spread it around God's love, to spread it around to the whole world. But when you see God's love for you personally and individually, and understand it for yourself, you will realize that God is a great God and you are such a tiny, insignificant and undeserving creature. But God did it anyway. Verse 4, we also realize in verse 4 that the household can share the lamb. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. So households can share the lamb. But the lamb is never insufficient for any household. Let me phrase it in another way. Two houses can share a single lamb, but no household requires two lambs. Why? The sufficiency of the lamb is enough for everybody. The work of Christ does not exclude anybody. It is sufficient and it is enough. No household, no matter how big they are, did they require two lambs. They always needed one lamb because there is only one lamb that God has given to us. He cannot, we, cannot, we can distribute him to everybody. And he is still sufficient and enough for everybody. But no household is too big to an extent that they require two lambs. There is no sin that is so big that God, because of the work of his son on the Calvary, cannot forgive. Never. I've met people on the streets that say, you don't know what I have done. Do you know what your problem is? You don't know my God. The love of God is so incredibly huge. It's so deep and so wide. It covers and is sufficient for everybody. Verse 5. I'm trying to move here as fast as I can. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep. 
We will pick this one up on verse 9. But sufficient to quote this verse for us. First Peter chapter 1, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Hold that thought. We will pick on it in verse 9. But before we go there, let us look at a couple of things that are mentioned in verse 5. One, a male of the first year. What does this tell us? The vigor of the lamb. This power of the Lord, of the, the Lamb of God, the Lord, was never weak. A lamb in his first year is at the prime of his strength, at his prime of his youth, and at a perfect age. There are some people who think that the Lord, because he put on flesh, somehow he became weak. The Lord was never weak. Yes, he did hunger. Yes, he did thirst. But never for a moment should we doubt the strength of the Lord. Take it out from the sheep. There were many sheep. But this was to be chosen from the rest. The Lord is the chosen one. He is not one amongst many. The Lord was chosen separately from the crowd. He is the only begotten of God. Let us not confuse him with other claims that are in the religion. The Jews had to choose to select one particular lamb out of the rest. And what do we see? They had to observe the lamb for four days. The lamb was taken from the crowd, from the flock, on day number 10. Set aside on day number 10. And then the Passover itself is going to occur on day number 14. What happens during those four days? During those four days, every day, this household would go and inspect that lamb to make sure that there were no blemishes on the lamb. The lamb would then be sacrificed knowing that it is perfect. The Lord came into this world and was scrutinized by the world. The world tried to look for faults in the Lord. He didn't hide. The Lord did not hide. The Lord made himself, he presented himself to the world. Everybody could have approached the Lord anytime. They could have quizzed him as much as they want. They could have tried to find fault. Indeed, they did try to find fault. The four days of the keeping of the Lord, the Lord was in this world for 30 years or so, in, examined by both those that liked him and those that hated him. And in the end, they found nothing because his life was perfect. By the time he gets to the presence of Pilate, even Pilate himself had to say, I find no fault 
in this man. He was ready to be sacrificed. The world has examined him and found him to be spotless, to be fit to be a sacrifice that is acceptable unto God. Verse 6. Very quickly. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Day number 14. When the Pharisees and the priests and the Sadducees were scheming against the Lord, one point that they made it very, very plain is that when are we going to kill this person? They could have killed him in any other day. But they said, no, 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 no. There is only one day that we cannot kill him. It is at the Passover. That is what they thought. We can kill him in any other day. There are 365 days in the year. We could kill him in any other day except the Passover. Because if we do kill him in Passover, there is going to be uproar. But what happens? That is man's plan. But God has his own plan. God is working on a timetable, folks. And his plan is going to come, is going to, come to pass. Men are going to plot. Men are going to try. But just as God planned, God had already spoken through this feast in the Old Testament that the lamb is going to be slaughtered on the 14th day, on the Passover day. And when did the Lord die? He died on the Passover day in spite of what the rulers were planning or tried to do. They tried to stop it, but they could not. We should take courage that the word of God that we hold in our hands is supernatural. This is not humanly possible. We can take confidence in the word of God that we handle in our, in our hands that this is not man-written stuff. This is God-written stuff. They, you cannot, you can do the calculations, but this is humanly impossible. And yet God achieved it just as he said. Verse number seven. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the upper door post of the house, wherein they shall eat it. God had told Israel that they should go and slaughter the lamb. And when they had slaughtered the lamb, they have got to mark the doorpost and go inside before the angel comes. 2,000 years later, the lamb has been slaughtered. The son of God has been spread on the tree. And the son of God has died. His blood is available for everybody. But you had to put the blood on the doorpost. You had to take that step of faith to say, I don't know what this is. There is nothing scientific about it. But God just told them, 
Put your blood in your doorposts and you will live. It's now 2,000 years the Lord has died on the cross. And yet, until men and women take by faith the blood and put it on the doorpost, taking God at his word, they cannot be saved. It is not that the blood is not there. It is not because the lamb has not, been, has not died. The lamb has died. But man has got a responsibility to respond to the call of God by faith. You could have argued with God, how can blood on the doorpost help me survive a plague? No, God said so. There are women and men 2,000 years after the lamb has been slaughtered that are going to die and slide into eternity, lost forever. Why? They did not put their blood on the doorpost. When the angel comes, there is no blood. You will be amongst the dead. It is true that when morning came, there was not a household that didn't have death. That didn't have death. In Egypt, there were dead sons. But in Israel, there was a dead lamb. Either way, there is going to be death. Which death is going to be for us? We should preach the gospel with agency. Because the angel is going to come. Verse 9, very quickly. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his leg and the pertinence thereof. The head, the top of the animal, the legs, the bottom of the animal, the pertinence thereof, the inward of the animal. The head, the top of the animal, when we go to New Testament, scripture tells us that he knew no sin. The legs, the bottom of the animal, the legs that do the work, he did no sin. The inward parts of the animal, New Testament tells us that in him was no sin. When the Jews took this animal, they did not know all these things. They just did what God told them to do. But you and I, when we look at these things, we see the language of God come alive in the person of the Lord, telling us the perfection of the Lamb of God how it is that he only was acceptable to be a sacrifice for us. Finally, verse 11, and then I'll finish. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
if you've been coming here at Bencham, there is a constant theme that you will recognize amongst us. We confess that this is not our home. When you are saved, from the moment that you are saved, don't get comfortable in this world. Get your loins because you are ready to go. They were, this was not a meal for them to be comfortable. This was a meal to remind them that they are on their way out. Folks, we are on the way out. I don't know how you make your plans, but whatever plans that you have, I hope that you recognize it in your life, that we are people that are on the march out of here. We will say this here at Benjamin. My day is going to come one day. Yes, there are people who love me. I know you love me. You probably will cry. But I can tell you right now, whilst I'm still alive, that I am looking forward to that day. Not because I am a sadistic person who, is, who loves death or anything like that. But we have to understand, folks, that he went to heaven to prepare a place for us. So that where he is, there we may be also. Our loins are gated. We are putting on our shoes and we are ready with our stuff in our hands. We are ready to go. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. Lord, we thank and bless you for the amazing truth, Lord, of your word that we see and enjoy. Lord, 